This is Chris Heimerdinger. Thank you for joining us today on Forever LDS. Oh, it's interview time, and today we'll enjoy a frank and philosophical, as well as spiritual, discussion with author attorney Stephen Densley, Jr. In his day job as an attorney, Steve has served on Utah's Privatization Policy Board and penned various changes to the Utah Rules of Civil Procedure. He has appeared on CNN, C-SPAN, BBC Radio, etc. Like me, though, he is perpetually bitten by the bug of research and scholarship appertaining to the doctrine and history of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, he serves as the executive vice president of the Interpreter Foundation. He is a true pioneer in podcasting on church-related subjects, producing countless shows and episodes for Fair Mormon and other venues, earning several prestigious awards, and lately turning many heads for an article he published with clinical therapist Garrett Giles entitled Barriers to Belief, Mental Distress and Disaffection from the Church, a link to which I will provide in the show notes that are associated with this episode. Now, uh, it's interesting that Steve and I have a long history. When I was 18 or 19 years old, a freshman student at Brigham Young University, I decided to be so ambitious as to want to make a rather expensive 16-millimeter film. They always say the worst thing you can do when making a film, especially when you're a new director, is to use kids and animals. Well, this film was going to involve grade school kids. So what could I do except put around flyers at local grade schools and try and cast students into the film? And I believe you were... 12 or 13 years old, is that right? That's right. We, uh, we used an animal. We used an animal, too. Gee, we had that cat. Uh, That's right. <laughs> so we broke all the rules of first-time filmmaking. I was 18 or 19. I was a new member of the church. I had been baptized the previous December. So when you and I met, I had only been a member of the church for four or five months. I remember you were one of the first to actually audition for a part in this little script that I had written called The Wolves, and it was about a grade school boys club. They had a leader of their gang who was not particularly nice, and he was trying to get all of the other boys to go along with doing some of the practical jokes that were very harmful, and they were going to try and do some harmful jokes to initiate a very young boy who wanted to join the club. And Steve was cast as the hero in that film. So he got the lead role at 12 years old. What was that experience like for you? Yeah, it was like a, a dream, you know, for a kid to get a, a lead role in a movie. You know, I recall that you were, gosh, I don't know, maybe the first student who had been given the full-ride scholarship in the film program, because you had just won, you were the youngest winner of, the, of an award at the Sundance Film Festival at the time, weren't you? I was a non-member given a full-ride scholarship, which is a little more than you would get if you were a member of the church. And I remember when yeah. I, I was upset because they, they cut my scholarship down to exactly what I would pay as a member of the church. And I thought, what? Shouldn't I get a little bit of cash for housing or something like that? <laughs> it was, though, a prestigious thing for me to make a film of that stature as a freshman. 
at BYU. And then, as I say, to involve all those other elements of using grade school kids. It was a great experience. I wasn't able to finish editing it or producing it until I returned from my own mission. After that was done, I came home and finished the film, and I was able to sell the film to a small educational distributor in the Midwest. And I don't know, I, I made probably 1500 or $2,000 off it over a five or 10 year period of time. I, they were making the transition at that time from 16 millimeter to DVD. <laughs> that was a big media switchover that was taking place. And so I remember that royalties diminished a lot when you went from 16 millimeter to a DVD. Now, going from DVD to CD and CD to digital, it was an interesting experience watching all of that over the course of my career, at least. But your career is long and prestigious. You know, I uh, graduated from law school at BYU, and I started working at Salt Lake as, uh, well, in law school, I started working in Salt Lake. So I've always been, I've always worked in Salt Lake. I've been commuting up there now for over 20 years. I guess what would be important is to let the listeners know why we're interviewing you. And that is because for a decade or more, all of the academics, all of the researchers, all of the scholars who do Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint apologetics know you. But I wanted to make sure that the listeners in general, they know who you are because you've been an avid supporter of Fair Mormon, Mormon Interpreter, a contributor to articles in Meridian Magazine, and so many other forums whose objective is simply to defend the restored church. Not always simply in a scholarly way, but in a philosophical way as well. I mean, you're an attorney. What's driven you to be so interested in almost being a mother hen in helping to defend the defenders of the faith? There have been lots of different factors, and as I thought about it, uh, it really, I think, goes back to when I was a kid. I did have a fascination with church doctrine, church history to some extent, but really more with doctrinal issues. I would have questions myself, and I would want to learn the answers, and so I became familiar with my dad's library. Books he had on the shelf, you know, flipping through Bruce R. McConkie's Mormon Doctrine and reading all those stuff that was in there. And then when I'd have some kind of question that would come up, I would be familiar with sources that I could go to to look for some answers. So I became interested and familiar with some of the issues. My own father, when he was on his mission, Eastern States mission, went to Washington, D.C. and Maryland, and he had run into problems with church critics while he was on his mission, and he happened to come across a church apologist. He didn't call him that, but he said that there was this guy that was well known for knowing all of the critical arguments against the church and what the responses were. And so he and his mission companion sat down with this guy and he said they went through everything and talked about polygamy and Masonic influences and the temple rituals and Council of the Fifty. And so I remember growing up him telling me about these different issues that they encountered on their mission and different responses that there were to them. 
And so I was exposed really early to this concept that there were people who had arguments against the church and that there were responses to those arguments. So whenever I was exposed to some kind of criticism of the church, it really never fazed me. I always just had this sense that there's an answer to that, and I'm going to figure it out. So I might spend some time looking up an answer, or I might put it on the shelf, as they say, if I couldn't find an answer. And invariably, with time, maybe I'd go back to the shelf and think, oh, yeah, I remember I used to wonder what the answer that was, and somehow I figured that out along the way. So sometimes that's how the answers would come, or sometimes it would come through study at the time. But it was a fascinating thing to me that I can't remember a time that I wasn't interested in apologetics, although I don't think I knew that term for a long time. Later in my life, I started to have more of a firsthand experience with the casualties of the arguments that people make against the church. People who have fallen away as a result of different arguments. Yeah, people close to me began leaving the church. So one of my best friends who returned missionary, married in the temple, just stalwart, outstanding member of the church, left the church. And I kind of fallen out of direct contact with him. He had moved away to go to school. And so it was a confusing thing to me. I didn't really have the ability to witness firsthand exactly what was happening. I'd talk with him on and off or talk with other friends, try to figure out what was going on. That was maybe somewhat of an impetus toward taking more of an interest because it wasn't just academic by that point. There were people close to me that were being affected by arguments against the church. Over time, that developed into other friends, family members, so it really did become more critical to me. But almost coincidentally, maybe 15 years ago, I have a father-in-law who was really interested, at the time, maybe more academically, a lot the same that I was, these kind of issues, and he was telling me about an organization at that time that was called FAIR, the Foundation for Apologetic Information and Research. And he said, you know, you'd really like these conferences they hold, and you you ought to come to these with me. And I was so busy. I was an attorney. I was an associate in a law firm, really demanding. I just didn't have really any time to do stuff like that. One Christmas, he bought a book by Bickmore, Barry Robert Bickmore, called Restoring the Ancient Church, and it was published by FAIR. And I was absolutely captivated by this book. What Barry Robert Bickmore does in that book is he responds to so many of the critical arguments against the church, mostly by evangelicals, arguments that we're not Christians, arguments that we don't believe in the same Jesus, or the kinds of things we believe about deification, about becoming like God, theosis, celestial marriage, these kinds of things evangelical Christians will claim it's not biblical, we're not biblical Christians, and Mary Robert Bickmore goes back, not just to the Bible, but to early church fathers. What were they saying at the time, just in the really early years of the church, before the Nicene Creed? And it's just astounding how much evidence there is for the argument that Joseph Smith restored the ancient church, that this wasn't something that he was creating out of whole cloth, that this was something that was being restored and was ancient. While it may be fair to say that Latter-day Saints are not, we're not creedal Christians, but we certainly are biblical Christians, and probably it might be fair to say we're pre-Nicene Christians. 
So that was fascinating to me. And around that time, I decided to leave the law firm I was at and start working in-house with a corporation, which gave me some more time to be able to do things like go to fair conferences and conferences maybe at BYU and read more books. And so I started going to the fair conferences, and around the same time, I started to become interested in podcasts. I, I began to notice that if you wanted to listen to podcasts about Latter-day Saint issues, your choices pretty much were to listen to anti-Mormon podcasts. They are still the dominant podcasting genre out there associated with the church. There's only four or five that I could even name that would be in the category of what Forever LDS is trying to do, and those would be things that are being produced by Mormon Interpreter and FAIR and LDS Perspectives. There's just not that many. There's been an explosion of podcasts in general since that time. In the early days, I mean, literally, there's like five or six that you could count. If you, if you go and you Google Mormon or Latter-day Saint, you're going to come up with a lot more now. There are just a handful that are prominent. It may still be true that the critical podcasts far outnumber the podcasts that are faithful. And so I went to Scott Gordon at the time when I started going to Fair Mormon or Fair Conferences, as they were known then. And who is, just for the listeners, who is Scott Gordon? Scott Gordon was the president. He still is. He's been the president for some time now. wasn't the original president, but for probably over 20 years, he's been the president of FAIR. I said, Scott, you guys have got to produce a podcast. You've got people critical of the church out there, and this is an emerging venue that is going to be really powerful. It's going to reach a lot of people, and you ought to do that. And he says, yeah, we've been talking about that. That's a great idea. And not a lot was done within the next year, and so I went back to him again. And I said, look, you guys need to be ebook publishing, you ought to be podcasting. And I started talking with him about some of my ideas. He said, you know, we're going to have a meeting of our public relations committee at lunch. Why don't you join us at that? So I did. And they signed me up on the committee. And I started podcasting with them. Now, the history of podcasts, we're talking about 2005 would have been when the first ones were released. So what year are you talking about? 2011. By that time, Blair Hodges had started podcasting for FAIR, and he had a few episodes out, and so I joined with him, and we started doing stuff. Blair now does a podcast for the Maxwell Institute. You know, and Blair's focus has always been basically Mormon studies, really interested in interviewing academics and talking about academic issues. I was more interested in dealing with issues that really directly related to critical arguments against the church. Thinking about, okay, so why are people leaving and what kinds of arguments are, maybe we don't have a real strong response. How can we flesh this out and get more material out there that responds to these arguments? And so that's what I started doing. No, I I want to get specific. So here's something that I've heard just of late, maybe in the last four or five years. And that's the argument that's been presented. And my own observation doesn't really confirm it, but I wonder about your observation. And that is that with the explosion of just the Internet, there has been 
a greatly increased tendency for Latter-day Saints to leave the church, to become disaffected from the gospel. Has that been your observation or experience? Well, so I did make a presentation at the Fair Mormon Conference last year about my observations related to why people leave the church. And what I really tried to emphasize in that presentation was that I think there are lots of different factors that can influence this process of becoming disaffected from the church. I'm not sure there are more people leaving the church now than in the past. To some degree, what we're seeing is a mechanism that allows us to recognize better when people are leaving the church, and that when people do leave the church, they may feel more emboldened to let people know, because there are these groups on the internet that help them to feel like they're not alone, where in the past, if you felt like, boy, I don't really belong here, or I don't believe in this, you may have kept it to yourself, or maybe you'd keep going to church without believing it, or maybe he didn't go to church and people just figured that that guy just really likes the taste of coffee, and so he doesn't come to church anymore, he really likes to golf. And there were maybe lots of other things going on, but that's kind of how we explained it. We all knew somebody. I had members of my own family. I had an uncle. He had a smoking problem and kind of figured, well, you know, that's why he doesn't go to church. Well, I guess to this day, I don't really know why my uncle wasn't very active. He kind of came in and out of activity. I think it probably had nothing to do with critical arguments against the church. But that's the kind of situation where today we may hear a lot more about it because maybe he would have gone onto Facebook or would have been on some kind of a blog or message board or maybe joined some community, maybe on Reddit. And then he would find other people that maybe they had some of the same concerns he did, maybe they have more. And so he starts to find out about those other arguments and thinks, well, yeah, that's a good reason not to go to church as well. And so he starts to adopt some of those arguments and maybe starts making them himself. And so we have this perception that the Internet has caused all of this, where I think that that's true, it's contributed, not the sole factor. No, I think it's shaped the situation, but we have a famous quote from Joseph Smith, that when you become baptized, you basically cross a line and you can't cross back. And I'll have to put a link to that exact quote so that I am not butchering it too badly. But basically he's saying you will become an enemy to the church. You cannot go back to neutral ground. So it's been my experience long before the Internet became the way that people communicated that when somebody left the church or when they became disaffected with the gospel— they generally did not go quietly. They would go with a lot of fanfare and trying to take as many people with them as they possibly could. And that would just be following along the same principle that Joseph Smith taught in the early 1840s, that once you've made the commitment to the gospel, you left neutral ground and you can't go back to the same state of mind that you had before you took on the covenants associated with baptism and becoming a member of the church. I think that that has stayed the same. That principle is still the same as it's always been throughout the history of the gospel. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth in that, that you, you really do make a choice when you join the church, and then when you choose to leave, you're making another choice, 
it's very difficult to be objective about it all. You, you can't just say, I have nothing to do with that church and it has nothing to do with me. It's part of you and you, you can't ever escape that, even if you're trying to get away from it. That is actually an, you know, an action in response to your history and that itself is affected by the fact that you were a member. So yeah, you, you can't really ever get away from it. No, and I read that article. That's an important article, and I'm sure you've gotten a lot of great feedback from it. One angle that you took, I mean, you have had a widespread interest in many, many topics that are associated with not only scholarly apologetics, but also issues of mental illness, philosophies related to how a person receives blessings. All of these sorts of things have been issues that you have taken a serious interest in and published articles about. This particular article took on the angle that one factor that contributes to somebody apostatizing or leaving the church is mental illness itself. Why do you think that would be a new approach, maybe from how we've looked at it in the past? First of all, I tried to emphasize that this is one aspect that may influence somebody in leaving the church. And I tried to be really clear that I don't think it's the only reason. I think there are probably lots of people who have left the church that don't experience mental illness. But the thing that was interesting and, I guess, disturbing to me was how many people who were close to me had become disaffected from the church who also experienced mental illness. And I began to wonder if there was a connection. And I haven't seen anybody else talking about that. And I think mean, it's, it's really sensitive. And obviously, you don't want to come across as suggesting that the only reason people leave the church is because they're crazy, right? No. Um, to be sure. quite honest, as I was reading the article, you know, you try and put yourself into the shoes of someone else. And that was the issue that I kept coming back to. If I leave the church and I attribute it to an intellectual reason— then I want that intellectual reason to be addressed. I mean, whatever I'm going through emotionally, whatever I'm going through with a chemical imbalance in my life, that's not the issue. It's human nature not to want to take responsibility for our own mental contributions to our own state of mind or the choices that we make. So that was my first response was, whoa, I want to be able to lay blame. I don't want to internalize that blame. And so my thoughts as I was reading the article was if I was a person who was suffering from mental illness, would be afraid that this approach might somehow be an effort to make my complaints secondary. It's like my complaints are legitimate. I have serious intellectual or spiritual concerns, and that's what drove me away from the church. And you're not going to sit here and tell me it's because I'm bipolar. But there's a portion of that which is curious because it is a contributing factor in many situations, many situations possibly not. But the main thing that m many people just don't want to do is take ownership of their own choices and decisions. They want to be able to lay the blame at the feet, generally in the case of the church, of the organization itself, or of the Prophet Joseph Smith, or of some other doctrine or choices that the leaders have made throughout history. And no way are you going to get away with saying that it's my fault. Yeah, and again, there's a complicated variety of different factors. President Uchtdorf 
talked about this in conference and said sometimes we may assume that somebody left the church because they wanted to sin. And he said it's just not that simple. There's not just one reason. I think certainly there have been people who have left the church because of sin. Maybe they've gotten in trouble with their girlfriend and it kept them from going on a mission and they were embarrassed about it. They didn't want to confess. And it was easier to start telling people, well, I just don't believe in the church anymore. Certainly that has happened. Now, it may not be that simple for that individual either. There may be other things going on. And so when we think about mental illness, just a really easy illustration of this that, that everybody would say, well, yeah, obviously. So let's say that somebody is suffering from severe depression and they just don't feel like they can get out of bed. They're in bed until 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock. They just can't face life. And so they have church that starts at 9 o'clock and they don't come to church because they're in bed. And it has nothing to do with faith in the gospel and it has nothing to do with any kind of critical arguments against the church. It's because they're depressed. So obviously, in that case, the reason they're not coming to church is, you know, and I've oversimplified it, you know, obviously every individual is different. There may be different circumstances for each individual, but just a very simple illustration of how somebody may become inactive because of mental illness. Now, there are lots of examples like that that we could use. Social anxiety, for example. So somebody may become severely anxious when they're in large crowds. And so when they come to sacrament meeting, it's a painful experience. It's an exhausting experience for them. And they may not be able to sit through the whole meeting or maybe they need to leave right after because it's just so overwhelming to be in this group for an hour that they can't stick around for the second hour or they don't want to interact with anyone. So they come a little bit late and then they leave a little bit before it's over. And then our perception as members of the church is that person they lack some faith, they lack some commitment. And the person who's in bed because they're depressed and we think, oh, they just don't care, they're not really committed, or they're lacking in their testimony, or maybe they've read some anti-Mormon literature, or maybe there's some sexual sin. So there may be all kinds of conclusions we're jumping to, and we're missing one of the primary factors, and that is that they're experiencing some mental illness, that if it were treated, then there would be this barrier towards their full activity in the church that would be lowered. I wanted to bring that to people's attention as we think about how can we help people that we ought to be considering this other factor that may be playing a role. So I think about my own ward and we start talking to my ward council about people who may be not coming and why is that? Because we've explored that and met with people. The stigma associated with mental illness, I think, has started to lower so that people are more comfortable talking about it. And as they're more comfortable talking about it, it starts to come out. They say, you know, it's difficult for me. And that example I use of somebody who's coming to sacrament meeting late and leaving early because they don't want to talk with anybody, that's an example from my ward. And it's not because of sin. And it's not necessarily because of critical arguments against the church. There might be some of that I'm not aware of. There might be a lot of things I'm not aware of. But this one particular thing was pointed out to me. So as I start thinking about the way the mental illness can affect church activity, I, I wondered, what about these critical arguments against the church? Could there be some kind of connection there? And after a few years of this idea percolating in my head, I started to come across 
what turned out to be a robust body of psychological literature that indicates that people with mental illness or specifically depression and anxiety, they see things differently than people who are not experiencing anxiety and depression. Now, we ought to be careful, too, when we talk about this, because a lot of people, most people, at some time in their lives, experience depression and anxiety, and maybe it waxes and wanes, and in some periods of their life they're not experiencing it, other periods they are. But those experiences of anxiety and depression, to a large degree, are problems of cognition. In other words, they're thought patterns that are unhealthy and inaccurate, really. You start to see things around you in ways that are not correct, and you start thinking about yourself in ways that aren't correct. And the way that that plays out with respect to critical arguments against the church is that you may see those, those arguments against the church in ways that are not accurate, not healthy. For example, somebody with anxiety disorder is going to tend to identify threatening information more quickly than somebody without an anxiety disorder. They're going to interpret information as being threatening more quickly or at all. Somebody without an anxiety disorder may look at something and not perceive it as being a threat. And somebody who maybe has an anxiety disorder or depression may see some information as being threatening when maybe it isn't threatening at all, but they would interpret it that way. The other thing they will do is they will ruminate on it. This is something that they just can't get out of their head. They'll think about it, and it becomes distressing, and it's a prolonged distress. They feel like the only way I can escape this distress, this anxiety I'm feeling, is to walk away from this. One of the biggest issues for women in particular is polygamy, okay? So if you have that thought in your head that what if... In the next life, my husband is going to have another wife. Somebody with depression or anxiety may, may look at that, and it becomes the biggest issue in their lives. They can't let go of it, and it becomes really distressing. Now, somebody who's not experiencing depression or anxiety may think about that and say, huh, that's an interesting thought, and I have faith that God wants me to be happy and that I'll be a whole lot happier in heaven than I can imagine and, and that God wants my happiness for me. So I'm not going to worry about that for now, and I'll put that on my shelf. For somebody who has anxiety and depression, it's very difficult or impossible for them to just put something on a shelf. And, and one of the really interesting phrases that you see come up again and again by people who left the church is they'll say, my shelf broke. When you think about that in terms of someone with anxiety, you can imagine how, for a lot of us, we may have a shelf that's in the back of our house somewhere in a closet in the basement. We put something in there and we can forget about it. With somebody who has an anxiety or depression, the shelf is in their front room and they see it all the time. Every time they're walking around the house, they come into the front door, there's the shelf and there's all the things on the shelf. And it's very, very difficult for them to ignore that shelf. And so the thing that makes it easier for them to deal with is you take the shelf and you throw it out the door. You, you, you walk away from the shelf. And so I think that that helps to explain a lot of times what's going on with people because 
I know all of the critical arguments against the church. I mean, I don't know, new arguments pop up every now and then. Every now and then, but they're all pretty uh, pretty rote. Every now and then yeah. they'll come up with a new one like DNA or, or something like that. And what's surprising for many millennials and also for people who are the next generation after millennials is when they learn that we were discussing these things at length, ad nauseum, prior to the Internet. And there were many publications. As you said, on your mission, there was someone who had earned a reputation of being an apologist, possibly somebody who would educate and help missionaries to deal with some questions. I mean, these things have always been. And the compa I think the compassion you're bringing to the table, that even to mingle the idea of depression or of mental illness with somebody's disaffection from the church, that is probably an element that people from my generation, you guys, you and I aren't that different. I mean, we're probably eight years different in age, but even more so for the generation prior to mine would have had no patience with that. It's sort of the John Wayne attitude of get off your butt and join the Marines. It's like, just deal with it. If you have a problem speaking in public, the only way to overcome that is to speak in public. There's a certain argument that indicates, yeah, that is the approach, but today, no, it's much more compassionate, and in a sense, it's almost tiptoeing around the topic. You and I, even during this conversation, feel like we have to be careful that we're not being exclusive or too inclusive of certain groups or of certain mindsets. Does there ever come a point when you just think, deal with your issues and try and move on? Well, to some degree, in terms of dealing with mental illness, it's necessary for somebody who's experiencing anxiety or, or depression to recognize that they are engaging in a, an unhealthy thought pattern. It's helpful for them to be able to say, okay, that's, that's the mental illness speaking. That's not a rational way to approach this. The, the house isn't going to burn down. I did check the door. I don't need to drive back to the house and check it again. If they can identify when they're experiencing those irrational thought patterns, then it can help them to avoid problems in their life and not become debilitated. That's only one thing. Now, one of the other things that can help when we're dealing with critical arguments against the church, for example, I may look at an article about polygamy and think, huh, that's really interesting. I'll have to think about that and figure out how to respond to that later. Somebody else who's experiencing anxiety and who tends to see things as being threatening and tends to ruminate on them, maybe looks at the same article and becomes so anxious about this that they feel like the only way to extinguish this flame of discontent is to leave the church. That will ease this anxiety I'm having. So my thought on that is if we can recognize, for example, in our own children, you recognize that this child is exhibiting perfectionist tendencies, that they've got to be exactly perfect all the time. They become really upset if they've done anything wrong and really pleased to see the work that Brad Wilcox is doing, for example, on helping to explore the concept of grace and what that means for Latter-day Saints, how God doesn't expect us to be faultless, that that's what a Savior was for is that we would not be faultless and that we're not going to be perfect, that we can only be perfect in Christ. 
And so that can help to change your thinking patterns. Now, maybe you also need some psychological therapy and maybe you need some medication or maybe you need to be exercising and eating right and getting enough sleep. So there are lots of things going on. But if we can recognize where you've got a friend, you've got a spouse, you've got a child, neighbor who is exhibiting some of these kinds of anxious thought patterns, that if you can maybe help them to recognize it, the church is starting to recognize these issues too. There's a really helpful resource that's available to church leaders on LDS.org that helps church leaders to, to recognize when this is maybe happening with members of their ward and there are certain questions that are presented where a bishop could ask or a Relief Society president or Elder Corn president and help people to recognize what's going on and maybe help them to start to get some help and maybe they need to be referred to some professionals to, to get some professional guidance. But then if that problem is addressed, then that helps to lower one of the barriers toward full activity and continued commitment to the church because otherwise there are things that can be distressing and, and make it difficult for people to remain members of the church. The compassion that you're expressing is admirable. That whole attitude and the idea that the church may be recognizing more the idea that this exists. It's something that people genuinely deal with. And then to play devil's advocate, DA or district attorney, maybe that's the same thing. I don't know. Anyway, if those <laughs> if well what if polygamy is, is just evil? That would be the argument that a lot of people would throw back at you. They would simply say, My theological problem is that the church itself has a problem. There's so many things that you would think that women would be the loudest complainers of. You know, I mean, obviously it's a perennial complaint that the church ever was associated with polygamy, that we don't allow women to hold the priesthood. And yet it's historically accurate, just as much yesterday as today, that the majority of active, dedicated, believing Latter-day Saints are females, are women. How do you explain that anomaly? One of the emerging arguments, and it's maybe a category of arguments against the church that maybe has the most traction right now, more than arguments about Book of Mormon translation or Masons or any of the traditional arguments, it becomes not so much a question of, is the church true or not? but rather, is the church good or not? More and more we're seeing people say, I can't in good conscience remain a member of that church because of the way they have historically treated women or the way they've historically treated blacks or the way that they've been treating members of the LGBT community. They will say, this is a bad place. I don't want to raise my children in the church. So your question about polygamy, I think, is related to that. How can I in good conscience part of this church when it's part of the doctrine that polygamy at some times has been commanded by God, most of the time not. How do we explain that? So there are some apologetic responses that are emerging to these issues. One of the things that I tried to do was find really effective spokeswomen on these issues that could help to respond. One of them that I liked a lot was from Brittany Chapman Nash. She's the church history department where she has been sort of excavating these stories from women, pioneer women, 
showing their experiences and how there are so many of these women who defended polygamy and felt like God blessed them for their sacrifices and their efforts. So when we let the women speak for themselves, we see a very different picture than if we impose our 21st century beliefs on what we would expect that they would think or that they would say. And so that's one way. I think that's, that is how it should be. But there's no doubt that what's happening in society in general, what we see happening in American Western culture, as far as identity politics and victimhood and all of these, it, it has played a role in the church and in our own culture. And we can see it in the nightly news as well as we can see it in our own sacrament meetings. It all is correlated. And so what you're talking about with focusing upon mental illness and devices or tools that we might use to help people to overcome certain things that might make them feel disaffected from the gospel, there's many different spokes that lead to the center of the wheel that help a person to put their lives back into full activity and put themselves right with God in their own minds and hearts. It's interesting that as we search constantly for a panacea, some ultimate answer that's going to help everybody to overcome the problem, what we find is that we simply have to reach into the toolbox and find a new tool. And it's the Holy Ghost. It's going to be revelation or spiritual guidance which we should all be open to, to help our fellow man or to help somebody else, to be able to find the answers that they need. Sometimes it'll be strictly intellectual. Sometimes it'll be Prozac. Or sometimes it will simply be faith and the Spirit. And as you alluded to way early in the discussion, the ability to simply say, huh, that's interesting. I don't know the answer to that. I'll put that on the shelf. And it's okay. I'll address that later. That was a statement that I found really, you hear paper wrestling, that's like for real. I, I feel like I could add that sound effect. It sounds so organized if you just add the sound effect of paper wrestling. But anyway, <laughs> what, what you wrote at the end of one of your articles, it explains so much about you. I have the same fascinations that you do with regard to scholarship and apologetics and many of these things. And people would say, well, you're just feeling like you have to defend the indefensible, or why do you feel this passion and this need to do this? And sometimes I would scratch my head and go, I don't know. I just do, because I don't base my faith upon it. I just find it interesting. And that really is the bottom line. And you sort of said something similar when you said, I must acknowledge that my own testimony of the church does not depend on academic arguments. As I encounter intellectual problems for which I do not have an immediate response, I usually study the matter further and sometimes must put the matter aside as I patiently wait to find the answer. Such challenges have not destroyed my faith because my faith is based on more than mere scholarship. However, if the gospel made no sense to me, and this is important, what you said here, I believe, if, if the gospel made no sense to me at all, I mean, if no scholarly evidences supported it, I think it would be very hard to maintain my faith. I am therefore deeply grateful for supporting evidence, scholarly responses to the critics, and the work of apologists. So I don't feel like I need to apologize for apologetics, and I think you actually had an article that had a title that was very close to that. I enjoy 
that kind of, I mean, it is enjoy the word as much as I am not afraid of any arguments that might be brought to bear against the gospel of Jesus Christ, because that really wasn't the cornerstone of why I joined the church. That was literally receiving a testimony that the church was true from a source that had nothing to do with scholarship or apologetics. And there's many people in the church, I got to say this, they have no interest in reading John Sorensen or Hugh Nibley or in reading many of the church apologetic resources. And in fact, I've even seen it occur on my mission and elsewhere where you will have a member who will bring up some really deep, logical, and informed arguments against some issue. And the person will simply listen patiently, and then you'll feel very much like they're simply being guided by the Spirit, and they take the conversation in an entirely different direction, and they simply address the kinds of things that you're talking about, where it's just emotion. It's also where someone is at personally, in their own spiritual lives. And there's healing that can be brought to bear where you don't have to win an argument. In fact, I would say the majority of church members, they couldn't tell you all the intellectual reasons why people argue against the Book of Abraham or against the translation process of the Book of Mormon. They don't even worry about it. They just know it's true. And when other people bring up those arguments— their first response, their natural response, is to look at it from a spiritual perspective and from a perspective guided by the Holy Ghost. And I do my best to tap into that at the same time that I want to be intellectually aware of how you might approach an issue. But I do worry sometimes about myself that I feel inclined first to answer somebody's intellectual concerns, rather than asking for the guidance of the Holy Ghost to approach a problem from a spiritual situation. Can you speak on that, or do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't know that anybody has a testimony of this church that is solely one-dimensional. I think that it has to be multifaceted. There are people who get uncomfortable with the idea of scholarship and rational arguments in support of faith. But even those people have reasons that they believe that are not just based on a feeling. Our missionaries go out there and they give arguments. They say, look, there's this book that exists. And we believe that it's miraculous, but read it for yourself. And, you know, the very fact that there's this artifact that exists that somebody can read that's purported to be from a prophet that was delivered to him by an angel, there are a set of arguments that are involved in that process. And then somebody reads it, and they have a spiritual manifestation of its truth, but they're not going to read it in the first place without some kind of an argument. In First Peter chapter 3, verse 15... Peter says, be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. That word reason in Greek is apologia. So what he's saying is that we always ought to be able to give a rational defense, rational argument for what we're believing. And that's one facet of our testimony. The 
manifestation of the Spirit, that convincing power that comes into our hearts, is another facet, but it's not the only. When we're told to learn by study and by faith, to worship God with our heart, might, mind, and strength. And so it's like the whole being. There are all kinds of things that contribute. Socially, I think there are things that help to bolster our testimony where there are people around us that help to strengthen us. It's like the coal that's in the fire and it's burning bright as it's set next to the other coals, but you remove it from that fire and it starts to go dark when it doesn't have that warmth that it collects from the coals around it. And similarly, people sometimes leave the church. Again, there are lots of different reasons, but it's interesting how you can identify as one potential factor that maybe somebody's social group has changed and they start to draw strength and friendship from people who are antagonistic toward the church. And that affects their testimony, just like it affects our testimony to go to church every week and associate with people who are faithful to the church. And so I think all of these things combine to help. And for me personally, you know, have to say that these arguments, these rational reasons for believing are one part of my testimony, and another part is the spiritual manifestation I have experienced in responding to these issues of, is the church good or bad? To me, in my experience, the church is the greatest force for good in the world. And when I started thinking about, you know, it was a few years ago, there was a lot of talk about the way that the church affects women, and that we had people marching on Temple Square. And one reaction was, well, let's think about some arguments against what they're saying. And the approach I took was to say, let's find women who can talk about how great it is to be a member of this church. I started to try to find some somebody who could voice that opinion, and somebody referred me to Sharon Eubank, who at the time was the head of LDS Charities, and I started talking to her about this concept that we need people who can help, and we need, it really needs to be a woman who can talk about how this is a great place for women. This is a good place for women to be, and it's good for women. And she said, I know what I'm going to do. I encountered a woman, I think it was in Africa, who came up to me. We were on one of our trips where we were doing some kind of humanitarian project with the church, and the woman came up to her, and she said, this is a woman's church. She explained how this church makes her life better as an individual, but it also makes her life better because of the way it affects her family, the way it changes her husband, and the way her husband treats her and treats her children. Everything in her experience as a woman is improved by virtue of this church. And so Sharon Eubank came and gave an address, and she titled it, This is a Woman's Church. It's a great, great address. I would recommend that to anyone. But I think that that's true with all sorts of different aspects of our lives in every way where somebody might say, well, this church is bad because of this. I think that there's a response where we can make the argument, the rational case, that this church is the greatest force for good in the world because it preaches the good news of Jesus Christ and it provides the ordinances that allow people to enter into a covenant relationship with Christ and receive his grace. Wow. What I appreciate most about what you're saying is the concept of balance, a multidimensional testimony. Now, there was a couple of things that I wanted to not let get away from us here. Now, you, you are a civil attorney. That's right. And nothing I say 
is the opinion of the Attorney General's office. <laughs> <laughs> I think that my experience as a lawyer, as we think about how there may be some interplay between what I do and apologetics, one of the things that's fascinated me is the philosophy of how we know things. It's called epistemology. And in the law, uh, one of the things I've always been maybe more fascinated with than about any area of the law is the law of evidence. How do we prove things in court? What do we do to convince a jury that my side is correct? So there have been some really interesting insights I've gained through that process. And one is this concept of proof. There are so many times in the scriptures that God will say, prove me now herewith. I give you strong reasons to believe. God wants to prove this to us. And so often we'll say, well, you can't prove the gospel's true. I think it depends on what we mean by proof. I interpret that from a very personal, introspective kind of an angle. I don't know if it's a community requirement as much as it is an internal personal requirement. But at the same time, things can be interpreted in multiple ways. But yeah, no, you're, right. you're right. The difference right. between proof and evidence. Yeah. So it, we can become sloppy in the way that we talk about things. And we may say, well, you can't prove that God exists. Or you can't prove the church is true. And I think usually when people are saying that, what they're saying is, that you can't demonstrate beyond all doubt, or you can't compel someone to believe because there's no way around it. I think that there always has to remain some ability for a rational person to decide the church is not true. And I think it makes a lot of sense that there are good arguments that reasonable people can adopt to believe the church is not true. If there were no arguments against the church, then to some degree, we wouldn't be free to choose to not be members of the church. And we need to have that kind of freedom. And so when we go into a courtroom, you know, I'm a civil defense attorney, the standard of proof, in order to say I've proven my case, I only need to get to over 50%. So we just say, you know, it's just a little bit more than even odds. If I can just tip the scale a little bit in one direction rather than the other, then I've proven my case. That doesn't mean that another jury on a different day with the same evidence might decide against me, right? There's plenty of arguments on the other side if you're only just barely over 50%. But we say we've proven it. And in our system of justice, we'll take somebody's property away on the basis that just over 50% uh, of the evidence. And so I think that in the realm of religion, we are maybe more demanding in terms of our burden of proof than maybe any other area. I mean, even in hard sciences, we don't expect scientists to come out of the lab and say it's been definitively proven. Usually they'll say we have a confidence interval of, you know, 99% or 95%. So there's always this room for error, right? There's an error rate. Well, you're talking about the, the way scientists might discuss it amongst themselves. As far as the layman is concerned, the general public, they do look upon science as an area where things have been proven and disproven. And that is not given to religion. And I think that's the point that you're making. Right. And people are incorrect about that, about science proving and disproving things beyond all doubt. 
science is a tool to help us make observations about the world around us. It's a very helpful and effective tool, but a good scientist is going to remain open to re-examination of the data and letting other people run the same experiment, see if the, the results are repeatable. They're not going to declare that I've determined once and for all that this is the answer and it can never, it can never change. We are always looking for more information. No, things have changed in my lifetime. I mean, they found water on the moon. <laughs> there's more evidence for life on Mars. I mean, there's so many paradigms about the interpretation of the universe that have changed even in the course of my lifetime. Things that were accepted as proof evidences when I was a teenager in science are no longer put in the same category. So that brings us back around to the beginning of our conversation. For instance, where we're talking about since the beginning of time, and prophets have used the same argument, since the beginning of time, there is an individual who is a believer who will say, look at nature itself, and you have all the evidence that you need of the existence of God. And then you'll have people say, that's not valid for me, that's not proof. And then it comes back full circle to, I wonder why, huh? I wonder why something so obvious to me as being proof that there's a God somehow doesn't strike you the same way. Then we start getting into perhaps some of the issues that we discussed, where somebody is going through their own crisis that we don't really understand, and we need to be compassionate, and we need to be able to listen and we need to be able to accept the guidance of the Holy Ghost to help that person get the perception that Heavenly Father would want them to have from the position that they're at, wherever they are today. I don't think you can do that without following the gift that hopefully you have within you as a result of being faithful and living the commandments and repenting, and that is to be guided by the Holy Ghost. That's the best way to be an apologist, to be a scholar or to be a defender of the faith, in my opinion. I mean, that you simply listen to the Holy Ghost and follow its directions in every individual case. That's right. One of the other insights that I've gained about the way people develop a testimony and, and the way that we know things, when I'm in a courtroom, one of the things that is preeminent in a courtroom is putting on evidence through witnesses. And it's very unusual in a trial that evidence doesn't come in through a witness in one way or another. Maybe it's a document, but it's coming in through a witness. And then often it's eyewitness testimony to something. So if there's a car accident, then there's a witness that talks about what they saw. And then the jury is able to consider what the witnesses have said, consider the credibility of the witness, and try to figure out who they believe. I think it's fascinating that our civil justice system and our criminal justice system depends so much on the testimony of witnesses. And then we are willing as a society to take people's property away from them or put them in prison or maybe take away their life based upon the testimony of witnesses. Well, God has provided witnesses of the truth of his gospel. And these are people who come to us with a testimony that they have seen God They've received God's word, and they want us to know what God would have us do. There were witnesses of the Book of Mormon. They saw the gold plates. They saw an angel. There were witnesses that felt the plates and were able to examine them. 
and then we're able to consider the credibility of these witnesses and think about what kind of men were these and what kind of reputation did they have. And were, and were they consistent throughout their lives? Yeah, so what kind of story did they tell and, and what kinds of things can we look at in their history to determine whether we should believe them or not? I think that's fascinating because this is a rational piece of evidence. It's almost what we might call a secular evidence. You know, it's, a, it's a witness. It's a person. As you're describing this, I'm thinking in a court of law, in civil law, there's strong evidence for the Book of Mormon's truthfulness. It's difficult to refute. It's, it's pretty yeah. powerful stuff. I think so. To me, it's very convincing. Now, one of the other insights I've gained is that when I go into a case and I look at the facts, it's been fascinating to me to notice how there's an attorney on the other side, and he may be very smart, or she, and the other attorney may be very honest and forthright and may have the best interests of society at heart, and they may come to a completely different conclusion about the facts than I do. Sometimes it's been just flabbergasting to me about how is it you can't see this? We're looking at the same evidence. Why don't you come to the same conclusion I do? And I think so often the answer has to do with just where you sit, what team you're on, and what sides you've chosen. So again, there are influences that come to bear on our interpretation of evidence. Life influences, so, I agree. It's, it's a much more complex picture than just simply judging the evidences before you. Right. And so some people will say, boy, if you only read this letter, you would have to leave the church. Or if you only watched this movie, or you only listened to this podcast, then you'd know. And then I can read the letter or watch the movie or listen to the podcast, and I can say, you know, I'm just not coming to the same conclusion. I see this in a different way. And so it's not just the evidence. It's not just the rational arguments. There are other things going on, but the evidence, the arguments, the witnesses, those things are part of the equation, and they can go both ways. And I think the reason they go both ways is that there are other things going on. Some of it comes down to simply what we want. Just to clarify, they can go both ways as far as how they are perceived in another person's mind. Right. So, so one person might look at the evidence and decide that this is the true restored church of Jesus Christ, and another person might look at it and say, I think that Joseph Smith was really smart, but he was a charlatan, and they may be looking at the exact same evidence. I think that what's going on here is, to some degree, what happens is it comes down to what people want to believe, and what we want to believe can be affected by a variety of factors, too, but if you want to believe that this is the true church, God has given us a lot of evidence for it, and we can choose to believe that church. If you don't want to believe that, there's evidence that you can gather to support that decision, but when God says that he's going to judge us based upon the desires of our heart... Desire, that is a factor in the faith principle. What is the desire that you have? If somebody feels threatened by the church, or they just don't want to believe in God, they're not going to receive a spiritual witness. It's not going to do them any good. It's having the desire. Is there a truth? You have to have that within you. Is this possibly the truth? If it was, I'm willing to accept it. But if it's not, please let me know. That kind of balance or that kind of evenness, I don't know. It's challenging for a person to reach that place. But generally in somebody's life, they do reach that place, that point. 
And I, I hope that this podcast or your presence or mine or whoever can be of influence in guiding somebody to the gospel of Jesus Christ is there at that moment. And, and that kind of timing is not always, it's certainly not a perfect science, but we do the best that we can. I think God is merciful, and to the extent that somebody doesn't accept the gospel in this life because of mental illness or because they weren't in a position to hear the truth or because they experienced something in their life that led them in a different direction through no fault of their own or through no choice of their own, I don't think that they're going to be barred from progression in the next life. I think that, for example, the extent to which somebody rejects the church because of mental illness is the extent to which they would not be held responsible for that choice. And God has many mansions. There are many degrees of glory. God wants us to be as happy as we want to be. He wants to fulfill our desires, and I think that that's why there are different levels of glory. For the most part, everybody's going to receive what level of glory they want to receive. And I think that's how the plan is set up, that if somebody wants to live a celestial law, that they'll go to the celestial kingdom. If they don't want to live a celestial law, they don't have to be there, and they'd be miserable if they did go there. But they will be in a place where they'll be most happy and most satisfied. And that's the process we go through in this life, is helping to prove, if to nobody else, to prove to ourselves where we're going to be most happy. I think that's profound. Now, there's one last topic I want to discuss, and that is, I went to a presentation of yours recently. You, as I say, eclectic interests. You also have a fascination in Egyptology, and I know that right after Christmas this year, you hope to be sponsoring a tour to Egypt. Your presentation that I went to a few weeks ago was on Egyptology and temples in Egypt from an LDS perspective. Tell us about the tour that you hope to be able to lead this December. Well, it's a tour through the Cruise Lady. It's cruiselady.com. They can go there and find the tour, the land tour to Egypt that will leave on December 26th. And Day after Christmas. Boy, right after, after Christmas. You're going to have to do a lot of packing on Christmas morning instead of waiting for Santa Claus <laughs> to eat cookies. It, it would be a fascinating trip because... One of the things that we're going to do is go to these temples, and I'm going to give some lectures about some of the things that Latter-day Saints can look for as they see what's going on in the temples that will be really reminiscent of their own experiences in modern temples. You're familiar, of course, with the chapter in Abraham, chapter 1, verse 26, says, Pharaoh, being a righteous man, established his kingdom and judged his people wisely and justly all his days, seeking earnestly to imitate that order established by the fathers in the first generations, in the days of the first patriarchal reign, even in the reign of Adam, and also of Noah, his father, who blessed him with the blessings of the earth and with the blessings of wisdom, but cursed him as pertained to the priesthood. The Pharaoh, at the time of Abraham, was trying to imitate those rituals and ordinances and the patriarchal order that came down from Adam, from Noah. And so then, when we go to these temples in Egypt, we can look for those evidences that the ancient pharaohs were trying to imitate the true order of the priesthood 
it's fascinating what we find. I'd love for all your listeners to join us. Well, that would we would look. You know, that's the subject of a whole other podcast that maybe we can do, and that would be. I found it fascinating as you read that scripture, the idea that we're talking about a man who was righteous all his days and yet was in the act of imitation of the priesthood <laughs> and the possible oxymoron <laughs> that that presents. We see the same thing in Mesoamerica, the idea that what makes a church true is the grandeur of its buildings, the grandeur of its temples and structures, rather than the simplicity of having the true priesthood or the gospel of Jesus Christ. At the same time, you're going to see at the very foundation of it all, truth, a real genuine desire to teach the true principles of the gospel. And that's what we had, I believe, or that it's testified that we had in the character of Pharaoh. The concept then is that what the Egyptians were trying to do was imitate the priesthood of Noah and of Adam. So when we look at what's going on in Egyptian temples, what do we find? And in my view, we find a vindication of what is taught in the book of Abraham, that there were things going on in those Egyptian temples that imitate what we see going on in our own temples today. Wow. Well, like I say, a whole new podcast. Maybe I could divide this into two podcasts if we were to continue this conversation. It's just, as I say, more evidence of your eclectic interests and the things that you've been passionate about throughout your life and that you've tried to do good with as an attorney and a gentleman. Definitely be a defender of the faith in whatever capacity has come your way. We appreciate it. All of your contributions, Stephen, from the time when I was a freshman in college until today when you and I do this podcast together, reminiscing about a lot of intellectual and spiritual things. I appreciate your time, your sacrifice from being with your family this late in the evening to be a part of Forever LDS. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. It's been fun, Chris. This insightful interview with my old friend Steve Densley Jr. may presently be the lengthiest episode on Forever LDS. I hope listeners gained as much from Steve's ruminations and wisdom as I did personally. Fans of this podcast may have noticed that I've been slightly unpredictable with the release dates of these episodes. The goal is every other Monday. If you haven't noticed, today ain't Monday. I suspect this unpredictability will continue until I finish the next volume in my Tennis Shoes Adventure series, which looms ever closer and is obviously a demanding and time-consuming exploit. My apologies. I have some extraordinary episodes of Forever LDS lined up for the future. I beg your pardon and patience. You can support Forever LDS by supporting our sponsors. As well, if you enjoy what we do, post a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or on whatever platform you prefer. It helps more listeners find the show. And if you really want to aid in our success, volunteer to help type up a transcript, especially of interviews like the one we conducted today. We have thousands of listeners and readers now. And readers, they prefer to read the content of an episode directly on www.foreverlds.com. 
And whenever I fail to post the full transcript of an interview, believe me, I hear the wailing and gnashing of teeth. This is not a venue for profit. It's a labor of love, and we would be deeply grateful for your help. If you don't feel as close to the Lord today as you did yesterday, who moved? You know the answer to that. So make whatever changes are necessary and move back. My sincere thanks once again for your listenership and dedication to this podcast and its objectives, which are to highlight the greatness and the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is Chris Heimerdinger, and this is Forever LDS.